Today is my favorite sermon title of all time. I'm so excited about this, guys. I'm a terrible namer of things. Laura rejected all of, my Ezra, all of the names for Ezri, even though mine were far more biblical than hers. Uh, she rejected my names for the cat. Now, now you, you get a cat, right? It's a fat little cat. Is the name snack time appropriate for that cat? Because there is nothing more fundamentally appropriate than this cat, which all she does is snack and sleep. Snack time is... But Laura's like, no, snack time is... Anyway, we have arguments about naming things. So I'm not really good at that kind of thing. Uh, when Eric was doing all of our audio, he constantly complained about the names of my sermon, which were like Hebrews 10, because we talked about Hebrews 10, like communicating well. But today we have a special thing, special name, and it comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 78 and 79. And I'll give them to you here. Because, now this is, the context for this is Zechariah. They've had this miraculous birth of John the Baptist. And Zechariah, his, his tongue is loosed. If you remember the story, he had been silenced because of his doubting of the angel of the Lord. His tongue is loosed. Uh, this baby son that they've been waiting for their whole adult lives, their old age, they've, they've had the, the son they've long wanted. And he bursts out in this, in this song or prophecy of praise which describes what John the Baptist is going to be up to. But more importantly, how God is going to use John the Baptist to, to pour out grace and mercy upon his people. And so this is the tail end of that song that says... Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. That is a really, really beautiful piece of scripture, poetic even. You can feel the kind of pathos, the emotions of Zechariah as he pours out his heart. And as he, as he considers all that God is going to do in John the Baptist and of course in Jesus Christ himself, like God is acting in the world in a new way. And so as he describes or locates, where does this come from? Why is God now moving and answering the, the promises and questions and pains of our, of our hearts? He says here, it is because of God's tender mercy. Now most translations, whether you're using this as the ESV or the NIV or the NRSV or the NASV or whatever, will give you something very similar to tender mercy. Um, but this phrase here, tender mercy, is more of what we call a dynamic translation. So just a little bit of nerd Bible knowledge for you. When we translate a Bible from Greek into English, we have to make a decision. Are you going to give the exact word or are you going to try to communicate the thought? Because sometimes, you know, the way they thought, the words they used to, to, to reference something is not the thought or the words we would use. And this is one of those situations. So in Greek, it's dia, it's hard to even do, splagna. Splag, kna, splag kna, right? It sounds like uh, it sounds like Klingon, exactly. Was that uh, Elius Theo Humon? Um, this is uh, basically literally translated not the because of the tender mercy of our God, but rather because of the entrails of mercy of our God, leading to the title today: Entrails of Mercy. That's a great title, isn't it, for a sermon, Entrails of Mercy. You're not going to forget that. Uh, and, and it comes from the fact that the ancient peoples, that when they thought about where emotion sat, they thought about it, it sat in the guts. You ever get butterflies in your stomach, right? It, it's, it's in, you ever feel sick to your stomach, you're so worried? 
Um, you don't want to eat because you're so uh, afraid or because you're so upset or because you're going through some kind of problem or grief or you're so excited. It's like it's all, it's all here, right? So they located it here where we will talk about the heart as the seat of the emotions, but for them is the entrails. And so uh, today's sermon is uh, entrails of mercy. And if you hang with me, uh, this is what we will get out of this sermon this morning. Not only seeing uh, God's own entrails of mercy, but hopefully encouraging us to have that same emotive reaction and to act in the world as agents of mercy. Because each and every one of us desperately wants mercy, don't we? Jesus says, blessed are the merciful because they shall receive mercy. And we want mercy. We don't want to be held accountable for the things that we do. That's why we make excuses. That's why we lie. That's why we sometimes ask for forgiveness. Right? We, we deeply understand and desire the fact that we need mercy. But so much more important is to recognize that it is, it is the reward, as it were, of being merciful is receiving that mercy. If you want mercy, you must give mercy. And I, I, one of the things I particularly love about this is that it indicates to us that God has an emotional reaction. And I know that might not sound controversial to you, but that directly um, is in contradiction to what some people will teach. They'll talk about God as being impassable. That is, nothing can affect God from the outside. He cannot be changed or or react to something that happens from the outside. Or that God is um, immutable. That is, he cannot change or desire something. But here we see that contradicted. Here Luke says, God has an emotional response to mercy. It isn't just that God stands back and says, you know what? I'm going to give you mercy. God feels mercy for us. Consider that. God feels mercy for you. Compassion, pity, uh, whatever word you want to use to kind of translate that. God feels it. And it's interesting because the Bible talks a great deal about the emotions of God. It talks about God's raging judgment. It talks about God singing because of the joy that he has over his people. It, it tells us about God's deep feelings of compassion. In fact, what's interesting is that the most frequent word that is used to, to describe in the Old Testament, so the, the, the first half of your Bible, to describe the relationship that God has with his people is a Hebrew word, we've talked about it more than once, chesed, which is often translated covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness, loving kindness, um, translate all these things because uh, chesed has this dual meaning of both a kind of patriotic, a patriotic loyalty and also deep emotional affection. These things kind of meet together in God's relationship with people in the Old Testament. And what's interesting is that as time went on, you might know this historically, that, that eventually the Greek language kind of spread and became the language of, of the world in that, in that region. Everyone spoke Greek, but not everyone, even Jews, spoke Hebrew anymore. And so they took the Hebrew Bible and they translated it into Greek. And that translation is called the Septuagint. In fact, when Paul quotes the Old Testament, he quotes from the Septuagint. He quotes from the Greek translation. And let me... Let me tell you the word that they used to translate from, from Hebrew to Greek to describe God's relationship with his people was this word right here. Andrew, go back one slide. No, that was two. There we go. It was this word right here, Elius, mercy. 
Which is to say that when the ancient Hebrews thought about how do we quantify, what word can we use to describe what God, how God interacts with us, if we're going to move from Hebrew to Greek, what word captures that thought? And the word they chose was this, mercy. Mercy. When God looks upon us, he looks with mercy. And Jesus demonstrates this all the time, doesn't he? Jesus demonstrates this all over the place. Here's one example in Mark 1.40. A leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling down and said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. And moved by... You'd recognize that word right there? Splagnagnizomai. That, that, that guts part right there. Entrails. So we usually translate with compassion or pity, a word like that. that It is emerging from this gut reaction. Jesus sees this man in need and he feels. And what is the expression of his feeling? I'm willing. I'm willing. Be clean. And immediately the man is clean. Which tells us something about Jesus, that when Jesus encounters pain as the living representation, the God on earth, God in flesh, when he seals, sees the suffering of other people, he isn't just standing there saying, okay, I see you're in pain, you're healed. He feels. So, happens again here. When he, that is Jesus, went ashore, he sees this great crowd, and he has, again, that same word is used, and here it's translated compassion or, or pity or mercy, on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. There are all these people gathered around Jesus and it isn't, it isn't the, the, the physical wounds that moves Jesus but rather their ignorance that they don't know the ways of God. And so he draws them together and he begins to correct them. That Jesus has a feeling in him that draws on mercy toward us and whether it is to heal our physical wounds, our emotional wounds, our brokenness, or whether to teach us the ways of God, it comes from the gut. It comes from his desire to reach out to us. And I really love that idea. Have you ever, have you ever felt compassion or mercy on anybody? Like, you, they're, they're telling you uh, their story, or maybe it's your child or a grandchild, and they're hurting and they're crying. And it isn't just like, well, I want this kid to shut up. There, there's that sometimes too, right? But you saw that child, and you, your heart hurt for them. Anybody? Your guts hurt for them. You, you wanted, in the deepest part of you, to make them better. That's mercy. That is God's mercy for you. God's feeling for you demonstrated here in Jesus Christ, but demonstrated also in the text that I want to spend a bit of time contemplating. Uh, and that is found on page 874. Let's make it easy and jump right there. 874. Luke chapter 15 is the uh, citation if you want to look it up on your phones or, or maybe if you brought your own, your own Bible with you today. And I'll start reading in verse 11. This is not a story that you are unfamiliar with. It is a story you know well. And it is a story that I have been reflecting on a fair amount lately. Maybe the greatest story ever told. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to him, Father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me and he divided his property among them chapter 15 verse 13 top of page 875 if you're still still looking there 
And not many days later, the son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered that property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. But even the pigs wouldn't share with him. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I'm perishing here with hunger. I will rise. I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just treat me like a slave. So he arose and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said exactly that. He had prepared this speech. You can imagine him working it through in his mind over and over and over again, each step of the way, the long way home, working over, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son getting it out as quickly as he could. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fatted calf that we've been saving for Thanksgiving and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive, he was lost, but now he's found. And they began to party. Celebrate doesn't sound quite right, right? That sounds tame, that's a church word. They threw a party, a big one. The older son was in the field, and he came and he drew near the house, and he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and he asked them what these things meant. And he said, your brothers, come home. Your father killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, which I feel like must be an understatement, and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I've served you. I've never disobeyed your command, and yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fatted calf for him? And the father says to the son, Son, you are always with me. All I have is yours. It is fitting to party and be glad for this This your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he is found. And we see in this story, right, the full display of emotion. I mean, how can you you not in your mind's eye imagine the son kind of cresting a hill and the father who has been waiting? I mean, there's no other way to describe it. He's waiting, looking at the road, wondering when his son will come home. And when he sees the son a long way off, he throws off all propriety and dashes to him that he might embrace and kiss and welcome his son home. And it's really important to recognize the context, so if you jump up to verses 1 and 2 of that chapter 15, 
What draws Jesus to tell these, this story? There's tax collectors and sinners all drawing near to hear him. Everybody's gathered up to hear him. And Jesus isn't turning anyone away. Anyone that will listen to what he has to say. Anyone who will experience the mercy and compassion of God. They're brought in. They're welcomed in. But verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, those people who are experts in Scripture, those people who, who know the right way, the people who have kept their lives upright and pure and perfect, who showed up to church every Sunday and never complained about, uh, well, their preacher of the music. <laughs> they say, the man receives sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus begins to tell stories. He tells three stories, and they get bigger and bigger. The first one's a story of a, of a shepherd who loses a sheep. And so he leaves the 99 and goes to find the one. And then a woman who loses one coin, and she searches throughout the whole house and, and, and to, to find that one coin and hear the story of a son that is, that is gone and the father who awaits their return. And in all of these stories, is meant to help us to understand that we serve a God who, as we sometimes sing, is the one who never leaves the one behind. He is the one who has mercy. He is the one who is searching. He is the one who is calling. He is the one who is waiting. He is the one who is ready to race, to reach you. The problem, of course, is that the, 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 uh, this, this son is, is still in the wrong, right? He has to come to this realization. He has to come to this moment of repentance, He has to realize that the reason I am in misery is that I have left the Father and the Father's ways. I have abandoned God. God didn't abandon me. I abandoned God. And I have to go to him. He wakes up one morning sitting in mud with the pigs and says, this stinks. (laughs) And it it draws me immediately, and, and I'm sure many of you have heard this before already, but it draws me immediately to this old saying, um, this old quote from C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory. One of the, Lewis is very quotable, but this is one of the great ones. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. And that's an important point. It isn't that we look upon our sin and our sins are just too much for God. I mean, they're just too much. No, it, it's, it's that they're so degrading and meaningless and worthless and petty. And we are made for so much more. Our Lord doesn't find our desires too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are too easily pleased. I think I read another offer, call it the banality of evil, which is a great phrase. See, we think we're being rebellious. We think we're being edgy. We think we're, we're doing something that is, uh, it is, is so free. We're like living free when in fact all we're doing is acting like children. I have a little experience with children. And one thing I know about my youngest is that uh, she loves her rage. When she is upset crying and I reach to comfort her she likes to slap it away it's like she would prefer to cry and weep and be alone when dad wants to pick her up make it better and probably give her a sucker right I mean like but she's choosing in those moments like like our our familiarity our desire for for let's call it death just to to make it big our desire 
uh, to resist mercy is so deeply ingrained in us from early on that we resist the one thing that we know will make it right. How many people I know who have said to me, well, I know I should go to church. I know I should read scripture. I know I should meet with other Christians. I know I should pray. I know I should stop this. And yet they don't. Why? Why do we resist the hand of mercy? If anything today, let it be us who recognize the depth of God's mercy. I love this passage and how it describes that mercy. This is from Isaiah 49. God is speaking tenderly to Israel. Israel who is experiencing judgment because of their wandering away from him. And he says, Can a woman forget her nursing child that, should, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these, those, that is those people around you, they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That is the depth of God's love for his people. And if we dwell for a moment in the story of the parable of the prodigal son, it sort of begs a question, doesn't it? Like, which one are you? The prodigal or the proud older brother? Depending on the day, it might change. Depending on the moment, right? It might, it might change. I vacillate pretty quickly between being and recognizing that I'm the one wandering off and me being proud that I'm not as bad as somebody else. Can I get a witness? But all of this is to miss the point of the story. Because the point of the story is not the prodigal, and nor is it the elder brother. The point is the father. The point is not that we should see ourselves in the prodigal or see ourselves in the elder brother, but we should see the calling to become, as Henry Nouwen puts it in his great book, The Parable of the Prodigal Son, uh, we are called to become the father. We're to grow up into that. And you see this display that the father has. He's ready to run and race and meet the one who is coming brokenhearted to him. And he's willing to sacrifice his own position to go out to the sulky stinker outside the door and say come on right he is the one who is constantly laying down his own pride position to deliver mercy to the two people in this story that don't deserve it may we become like this Jesus says as he talks about our encounters with our enemies in Luke 6, talks about loving our enemies and forgiving our enemies. And there might not be anything worse in the whole Bible than that word or that line to love your enemies. Um, He says, you know, if you love the people who are nice to you, well, you know, kudos, right? I mean, there's there's nothing special about being nice to somebody who is nice to you. Nothing special at all. But if you would be the sons and daughters, the sons and daughters of your father, then you, he says in verse 36, you must be merciful even as your heavenly father is merciful. The call here then is that we are to grow up into the fullness of Christ. And uh, I want to leave you with some practical advice. Can I do that? On how one might do this. And and, and much of it comes from... uh, this great little book, and I, I'd encourage you to read it if you're interested. The Parable of the Prodigal Son by Henry Nouwen. It's an amazing little book. Real easy, real easy read, but deep. But, um, but here is uh, 
the first thing. The first thing I would encourage you to do is to learn how to grieve again. To learn how to grieve again. I have seen in, in all of my years of churchiness the codriest codger feel mercy upon a little child who falls down and stumbles. Everybody stops and looks, you yeah. But upon adults and upon each other, we're so quick. In fact, the first thing we tend to do is to assume the worst about each other. The worst intentions. The reason they said that was because they wanted to tick me off. The reason they did that was because they wanted to make me mad. But what we need to do is we need to turn our hearts into recognizing that everyone you see is made in the image of God. And we need to learn to grieve for the wounds that other people feel. We learn to need to st- learn to stop looking at ourselves and start looking at other people. Because once you learn to grieve over what other people grieve for, Jesus says that mourn with those who mourn. Like, once you do that, you begin to have that kind of innate gut compassion. When you really listen to somebody else's story, when you hear them, something changes about how you see them. Uh, as the great Orson Scott Card put it in Ender's Game, you cannot help but love someone if you truly know them. So learn to grieve. The second thing I would say is to begin to look for joy. This is something I'm working on because I'm really terrible at it. I always see the dark cloud and I never see the silver lining. Anyone else? I mean, raise all of your hands because all y'all are guilty of this. Because I know that when somebody drops by your office or gives you a call and says, hey, listen, I had this great thing happen in in my world today. You know, this is a wonderful opportunity that happened to me. And you'll say what? Oh, that's nice. But if they say, listen, did you hear about that person's affair? You're like, oh, tell me more. Like we love dirt. We love dirt. I mean, turn on the news. What is it? 99.9% dirt. And that's why we keep washing it. We love the dirt. If it was full of joyful stories of happiness, we'd be like, man, when's Star Trek on? This is boring. Because somehow we have so attuned ourselves to the grammar of death that joy is just not even interesting to us. And so look for joy. Discipline yourself to look for joy. And one of the ways that you can do this is learning how to say to God, come rain or shine. Not that. Thank you. Learn how to say thank you. Uh, Your car is broken down. Thank you, God. You have legs. (laughs) Things aren't going well with your wife or your husband. Thank you, God, you gave me a relationship. Things aren't going well at work. Thank you, God, I still have a job. And, and, and things are going well. Thank you, God. I praise you that this has gone so well that things are, the day moved quickly and, and I'm done with work. <laughs> Thank you, God. Like, I mean, turning everything into thanksgiving. And those are the words that are most frequently found on your lips. And this, I believe, brothers and sisters, is just a discipline. You don't want to do it. You're not, it's not natural to you. It will feel uncomfortable to you. But I implore you by the tender mercies of the living God. Say thank you more. Look for joy. And look to mourn with those who mourn. That we might be merciful as our Heavenly Father is merciful. Let's stand and sing this song.